With all that said, though, why don't you do this? If you have a Bible, uh, why don't you open it up with me right now really quick to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, and we're just going to dive right in and jump right in. It's so great, again, to have you here. Now, just a little background just before we jump in and read this. Last week, we started a new theme and a new series called Dear Warmwood, and basically it's off the premise of C.S. Lewis' book, The Screwtape Letters, where there is a senior demon named Screwtape who writes a junior demon named Wormwood, and how they're going to deceive the patient, which is a human or a follower of Jesus, away from the kingdom of God. And so it's this little satire book just showing how the enemy or the adversary works. These two demons, senior demon and junior demon working together to kind of deceive this human away from God. And it's a brilliant way of looking at uh, our moments and what's happening in our world. And so we're taking some time right now just to look at spiritual warfare, the spiritual backdrop of the Bible, and things like Satan, demons, and the principalities. Welcome to church. So glad you've logged on. So glad you're here. But we just really feel like this is important. And that's basically the premise that we've laid so far. Last week we just said, this is a world that many of us um, neglect to even think about or talk about. We're kind of Western people. Um, but we don't like, uh, many of us don't like this idea of a spiritual world happening and going on. And yet what we talked about is the reality that this is a major theme within the scriptures. And so as we've laid some of those uh, blocks, we also looked at C.S. Lewis' work and how one of the things that Screwtape wants to do, do with Wormwood in their deception of this human is to get them to think that this is kind of a joke. This whole idea of the spiritual realm is a joke. And we're going to continue this. The hope is last week and this week to kind of lay a foundation for spiritual warfare and the spiritual context of the Bible, the spiritual backdrop. But listen, look at 1 John. So this is John. We're not sure if it's John the disciple. Back in the day, it was kind of hard to know exactly who the authors of uh, many of these letters are. We assume, many people assume it's John the disciple who walked with Jesus. Either way. Um, this is somebody writing to the churches, writing letters to the churches for them to get an understanding of who Jesus is and the way of Jesus. And listen to what John says. First John 3 verse 7 says this, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And then listen to what John says about Jesus. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's works. The reason why Jesus, the Messiah, got on the scene was to destroy the devil's works. And again, the reality is we don't talk about that, that side of things a lot. We talk about love and justice and peace. We talk about atonement. We talk about God's love through it, for us through Jesus and bringing salvation. But it's interesting that John, years later, articulates to the churches, this is why Jesus came, to destroy the enemies, the Satan, the devil we get in our context here in the English Bible, the devil's works. Gets me thinking about what Screwtape actually writes Wormwood in the Screwtape letters. He says this to Wormwood. Check out what he says. He says, it is funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds but in reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. Let me read it again. It's funny how mortals, the humans, always picture kind of the adversary or the enemy putting things into their minds. 
But in reality, our best work, Screwtape says, our best work is done by keeping things out. And so what we wanted to do is lay the foundation on exactly that. We're, we will get in the coming weeks, we're going to get into how the adversary works to put things in our minds to get us to believe and think lies and buy into lies. But these first couple of weeks, what we wanted to do is look at exactly this, how the enemy works in kind of getting us to ignore things in our minds. And again, one of these areas is the spiritual backdrop to the Bible uh, and the Satan and what he ultimately wants to do. And so this is what we're going to look at today. Again, we're going to build on what we started last week. And I hope even this little quote here from Screwtape to Wormwood just opens up your imagination of how easy it is to let things pass our minds about things that are really important like spiritual warfare. Now I'll say this, a lot of, there's been lots of questions over like the week and um, just engaging with people. This has been um, something that people have been having questions about for years. So I'm really glad we've been able to jump in and start to talk about this. But some have asked like, where are some of the foundational ideas? Like where do you, where have you got this? Where does this come from? I see it now in the Bible, but is there anything I could be reading? And the answer to that is yes. Really quickly, there's a guy named Michael, Dr. Michael Heiser, who is the most foreknown scholar right now in the world on the supernatural and the spiritual realm. His dissertation for his PhD was uh, he put into a book called The Unseen Realm. It's a little dense. So what he's done is he's distilled it down into a book called Supernatural. It's a great little book highlighting, again, the spiritual background and the spiritual realm and the world of uh, what, we, what we've been looking at. There's this theme throughout the Bible of the supernatural and spiritual realm. Um, I really encourage you to engage it. He's also done some further works on demons and angels, just helping the church in this moment really wrestle through um, these key themes and ideas. So uh, great works there. I do encourage you to, on your own time to, to engage some of this stuff, but especially Supernatural, it's written at a popular level to make it easy for some of us that maybe, not, maybe aren't as academic and, um, and you know it's not as dense, which is great. But with that said, I also got thinking, we have some of Michael Heiser's work. And so what we're going to do, and this is just kind of just thinking about this the last couple of days, what we'll do is the hope is over the next couple of weeks is to... Let's do this. On Wednesdays, we're going to do, uh, the, uh, the, let's do a theological happy hour, theology happy hour. And I'm actually going to release, we'll, we will release the next two Wednesdays, some work from Dr. Heiser on a workshop that he did. If you have further questions, some of those questions can be answered in some of these um, some of the talks that he does. So we'll release that for you guys and you can watch that on your own time. We'll also put it the next two Wednesdays on the podcast. But for this week, what we're going to do is there's lots of questions, again, around the background and the spiritual backdrop of the Bible. And I don't want to be somebody that always uh, pushes it off on Tim Mackey. Many of you guys know Tim Mackey. He is uh, one of the head guys at the Bible Project, these guys that do these animated videos. Um, and he's done a great job uh, really pioneering the Bible Project. But Tim also takes some of these ideas and really distills them down into an interview style. And so he was interviewed about the gods and the spiritual background of the Bible. And I was going to develop this more and saw this and thought, you know what? This is a great moment to have another voice come in and talk about this. Somebody who I think is really brilliant and smart and will be helpful. So we have a little interview and this is going to kind of be the teaching portion of uh, the morning. If John is writing and he ultimately believes that the Son of God, Jesus the Messiah, came to destroy the works of the devil, 
there's lots of questions around that. And so we want to jump into that. So why don't we take a couple minutes and watch, and uh, I know this will probe some great ideas in our minds and maybe some further discussion at the end. So check this out. You know, I grew up in Western, whatever, culture, yeah. Portland, and uh, my default worldview is a materialist, not yeah. non-supernatural anything. Yeah. Um, so I have to choose to actively think outside of that default. I don't find this easy to believe. Yeah. Like this isn't natural for me to... So I'm choosing to say, I think these biblical authors and Jesus have a way of viewing the world that they can see something that I guess I can't see. Yeah. There's something I'm blind to about how they view reality and that this is a really important part of understanding what's going on. Yeah. And so I just want to encourage people <laughs> yeah. who find this whole thing hard to believe. Like, yeah. that's okay. Yeah. That's okay. Um, but it is, I think it becomes a worldview that you have to learn how to adopt. Yes. And have it learn how to explain things that we see going on around us and in our own lives with a view to spiritual evil. Yeah. And so what does that mean? But don't feel bad about being weirded out because I think a lot of us are. You're in good company. Okay, let's dive in. Sure. Let's just start from the beginning. Okay. The English word God. Yes. So when we talk about God, <laughs> totally. I think what comes into mind yeah. for me and most people yeah. is some kind of an all-wise, all-powerful, semi-personal creator. Not all people, but for the more Western, post-Christian kind Correct. of mindset. Yeah. In Hebrew, the word is Elohim. Uh -huh. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a very different kind of word. So maybe talk yeah. to us about yeah. the opening line of the Bible, in the yes. beginning, Elohim. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, the classic Jewish-Christian confession about the nature of the scriptures is that God's revealed himself through human language, through these yeah. authors. And so that happened to be in Hebrew, in Aramaic and Greek. And so... What it means is that the language the Bible was written in, these words have connections of meaning that aren't identical to the words they get translated into in any language, English, yeah. for us. So this is, Elohim's a great example, right? It's one of the first words of the Bible, which you think would be crystal clear, God, right? Yeah. And it turns out it's not. It's not. It's, it's complicated. Um, so what uh, these Hebrew biblical authors have in mind when they use the word Elohim isn't the same thing as our English word capital G-O-D. Um, so, so let's take the English word God out for a second. Let's just use Elohim. Got it. So if you tally up all the uses of this word in the Hebrew scriptures, we're talking over 2,700 times, um, you have all kinds of beings referred to. Um, you have the one Elohim, who's the creator and king of all, that we think of as capital G God. Capital G God. Um, and some, and it's often clear because biblical authors will put the word the in front mm -hmm. of Elohim. They'll, yeah. they'll call the God of Israel or the Lord God the Elohim. English, or, or they'll use God's personal name yeah. revealed to Moses, Yahweh. So uh, he's the chief Elohim yeah. who made all everything. Um, but there are also other beings called Elohim. Um, and uh, they can, it can be the Elohim of Egypt that God's fighting yeah. in the Exodus story. God says yeah. in Exodus chapter 12. Um, it can be the gods of any of the other nations, Elohim of Moab or Babylon or whatever. Um, 
there can be other beings that God, we'll talk about this, God uses as his staff team that he yeah. processes decisions with. Yes. <laughs> this is a category of creatures called Elohim. Yeah. And then even um, the invisible presence of somebody who's deceased but and yet to be resurrected, um, so we might call them spirits of the dead, um, can be called Elohim. Wow. Samuel. Yes. There's a story about Samuel. That obscure story with That's Saul. Right. And... Or in Isaiah chapter 8, he talks about people consulting spirits of the dead, and he calls them Elohim. Yeah. So the word Elohim in Hebrew, the, the short way to summarize it is that it refers to a being who's an inhabitant <laughs> of, and again, we lack good language for this, uh, where I'm at at the moment is saying the spiritual realm, yeah, which doesn't mean the non-physical realm. In the Bible's conception of spiritual and physical, is these are two distinct but overlapping realities, yeah. just like heaven and earth yeah. aren't separate, but they're overlapping. And so an Elohim is a being who is an inhabitant of the spiritual realm who can sometimes manifest yeah. in physical form. And there are many Elohim. Yeah. There's only one chief Elohim who's the creator of all. So what about like there are, Isaiah and others when yes. they write, there's no Elohim, yes. but one yeah, or that's right. like the idea of false gods. Yeah, so correct. I heard that correct. language of false gods yeah. for years. And in my mind, I defaulted to non-entities, yes. yeah, false as right. in made yes. up, mythic, yeah, not true. Right. So the God of Moab yeah. is a myth. But yep, that's not what that. you're saying. Yeah, what the biblical authors are clear is that idols, statues, yep. that they, aren't, they are not Elohim. Mm -hmm. They're pieces of wood. Right. <laughs> um, however, what they are not claiming in these texts about idols, Psalm 115 is a classic example, what they're not saying is those um, idols aren't connected to Yes. Or in some way, an a, intermediary a real, for... a, an Elohim, mm -hmm. a real spiritual being. This is why Paul the Apostle said to the Corinthians, yeah, don't go eat in these temples dedicated to Zeus or Apollo. Um, he didn't say because Zeus is a figment of your imagination. No, he says because you could be in the presence of a daimonion, which is a yes. Greek word for a, a less, a, or... an Elohim, a yes. lesser god. So um, they believe in the reality of spiritual beings. So you're saying it's more about categorization than it Correct. is about reality. Yeah, right. So false gods aren't false in that they don't exist. Yes. They're yeah. false in that there's one creator. Yes. The others yeah, are created. That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah, correct. Yeah, that's why uh, Moses can say in Deuteronomy 10 that Yahweh, the God who rescued Israel out of Egypt, he's the Elohim of Elohim. <laughs> Got it. Uh, which is like the holy of holies, the most holy space. He's the most God of gods. Or like or, the most high is another word for that, right? In the Old right. Testament? Yeah, that's right. Over the all most, the other gods? That's correct. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, so there's like about three or four passages that talk about no Elohim beside Yahweh mm -hmm. um, or don't have any other Elohim before me. Yeah. Uh, is one of the Ten Commandments. Yeah. Um, what that's not saying is other Elohim don't exist. What it's saying is there's no Elohim that fits into the category of Yahweh, the chief Elohim. Nobody on, his, on parallel with him. Yeah. What they do have in common is that they are both spiritual beings. Yes. Um, which there are, it, there's a populated spiritual universe in the biblical story, just as there's a populated human yeah. universe. And actually, there's an important relationship between okay, the two. Okay, so talk to me, about. let's move into that. Talk to me about what, you know, in Bible nerd language is the divine council. Yes. 
<laughs> which we read about through yeah. the Old yep. Testament that's and right. just skip over. But that's all through the story of the yeah. Bible. Yeah, that's right. What is the divine counsel? Yeah. Um, the, the reality and the role that these other spiritual beings play in the biblical story, um, the way it unfolds in the Bible isn't, actually the way most anything unfolds in the Bible isn't the way modern Westerners think of how a story works. Um, it's meditation literature. Got it. Which means that from the very beginning, it's assumed that you've already read through the whole thing. Right. <laughs> and so there's all kinds of puzzles. A lot of times. A lot of times. And put it to memory. That's right. So there's already, um, there's loaded into the first stories of the Bible, all kinds of puzzles and ambiguities that you won't understand even what they mean until you get later on. Because you're meant to meditate on it. Totally. Read it slow, that's deliberate, right. think, yeah. wait, it's a, it's pick a kind up a piece of, of the puzzle. literature that's inviting a lifetime of rereading and discovery. That Psalm 1 kind of totally. meditates on that's the right. law. Yeah, Psalm 1 isn't right. just like a nice thing of read your Bible every day. It's yeah. actually designed not to give up its secrets on the first reading. It's an invitation. Yes to keep reading. It's specifically designed not as a quick read. That's right. But to get you to read and to read slowly. That's right. And so a classic example is on page one, where um, God says, let us make human in our, our image. image. Who's the us? Right? That's a classic question, right? Yeah. Jewish and Christian readers for thousands of years. So you actually have already been given a clue as to who that us is before that point in Genesis 1. But as the story unfolds, you get more and more clarification about that. And it's what um, the biblical poets in Psalm 82 or Psalm uh, 89 will call the divine counsel, the counsel of Elohim. Hmm. Um, so on page one, God um, creates uh, the sun, moon, and stars. Actually, the word sun and moon is never used. It's just called the lamps. Wow. It's the same word as the lampstand in the tabernacle. So God creates a heavenly lamp, <laughs> a bigger one and a lesser one. Yep. And the kochavim, uh, the stars. And what he tells these creatures to do is to rule, to rule the skies. Wow. Then parallel to that is he, he says, let us create, excuse me, yeah, let us make. Let us humanity to human, rule to rule over the land. The land. So Genesis one gives us this image of the celestial realm, which is under Yahweh. He's above the heavens, so yep. to speak, as the, the ruler overall. So under Yahweh are two delegated authorities: the celestial rulers, yep. the lights and the stars, and then the terrestrial rulers. And lights and stars. I've always just read that as the sun and the moon yeah, and the totally. stars. That's right. And you're saying that behind that was this idea of spiritual yeah, that's creatures. Right. Every single mention of the stars in the Hebrew Bible uh, refers to them as creatures. The biblical authors envision these as creatures, be beings, yeah, like spiritual beings, yes. <laughs> celestial beings. Um, and this is common in the ancient world. And it's common for biblical authors, but, but they even tell you, right, when they're first introduced in Genesis 1, that there's something there's more than meets the eye here. Because the first word in Genesis 1, verse 14, is these creatures are called um, otot in Hebrew, symbols. Hmm. It's the Hebrew word for symbol. Yeah. So the sun, the big lamp, the little lamp, and the stars, which rule, are symbols for humans. And in the Bible, this word sign or symbol is a real thing 
that is itself just a signpost and a pointer to the greater reality, reality to which it points. And so from the human perspective, we look up at these glorious creatures yep. and are to view them as symbols to some greater... So I, it's so easy to translate into a modern conception of the universe in the uh, a theistic view of the world, believing that there is a beautiful mind, mind behind all of this is that the sun is a ball of gas, <laughs> that we are rotating around. Okay, yep. so it's a different conception of the world, but the theological idea is the same. Namely, that uh, uh, someone who believes in a creator, for them, the sun is itself a sign and symbol to a greater of source of beauty and power, yeah. the beautiful mind behind it. So that. at first it sounds just wacky. It sounds crazy, but you actually... But it's not actually... It, yeah, that's yeah. right. That's correct. Here's the deal. Here's what's happening on page one, then. God, the God of the Bible wants to share his universe with other creatures. That's the depiction. Mm -hmm. And he wants to share it in such a way that his rule and authority over it is mediated by these delegated creatures. And that's the key idea. Celestial. Celestial and terrestrial. terrestrial. Right. Spiritual, Spiritual let's call it that for <laughs> and, now, uh, and human beings. And human beings, that's right. Because and God has set the universe up in such a way that he wants to run it through intermediaries. That's right, yeah, through, so that what, so that what creation becomes is a, a, a symphony of unified wills mm. who submit to each other in yes. love. If, I mean, if we want to get Trinitarian about yes. it, which is where it's all going. Which is where it's all, yep. Um, and still is yet to go. Yeah. And still is yet to go in the story. Okay, so let's, right. let's talk about what went wrong <laughs> with God's original, or, or right, with God's yep. original. Yeah, that's so, right. So, in so order just, to, just to clarify, yes. um, go to any reference to the stars in the rest of the Bible, and what you'll see they're all doing is referring back to this depiction of delegated spiritual beings on who rule yep. the world on God's behalf. Which, again, we you already just, get that idea from yeah, the cool. human thing. Yeah, Adam and right. Eve are there yeah, to rule. Exactly Delegated right. authority, that's kings, correct. queens, priests that's over. So right. you're just saying this is going on in the heavens as well as on earth. That's right. The, the relationship between heaven and earth is a connected an overlap. one and, and a mirrored, a mirrored reality. And this divine council yeah. is this yeah. inner yeah. grouping of spiritual beings. Yeah. It is... To Yahweh in the heavenlies, what humans are to Yahweh in on the, the earthly earth. realm. Okay, right. but something goes wrong. We know the Genesis story yeah. with the human beings as a, a rebellion Correct. against God's yes. vision yeah. for human flourishing. Yeah, that's right. And then something also goes wrong. Yes. In the heavenlies, <laughs> right? Correct. So talk to us about yeah. you know what in Christian tradition is called the fall. Yeah. Not so much the terrestrial side of it as much as... Well, but, but they're joined. Yeah. So you get a talking snake on page three of the Bible. Yeah, that's there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Hebrew word for this being is nachash, the nachash. And um, it also happens to be uh, the word for diviner or sorcerer. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and it also is related to the word for shining or brightness. Um, it's connected to the word bronze. Nechoshet, nachash. Nechoshet is bronze, mm -hmm. which is always I'm not in my head like I, like I know Hebrew well enough <laughs> right, to yeah. know what you're talking yeah. about. But. Biblical authors um, often use vocabulary because of the connections through puns and word plays and associations. And that's just a normal way of how they write. Yeah. They're doing it all the time. So when you see um, uh, a, a beast of the field, the, a snake, um, but who's talking, like it's not like ancient biblical authors 
were somehow more primitive and gullible than we are. No, they're Th brilliant. They thought talking snakes were normal. Right. <laughs> and Genesis 1 is some of the most sophisticated literature ever. Yeah, totally, yeah. Ever, that's right. right. Yeah. So a talking snake's So it's not to... like, well, now we know snakes don't talk. Yeah, and they don't but they didn't know that back then. Of course they know that snakes don't talk. That's why it's It's bizarre. in the story, yeah. It's bizarre. So there's more than meets the eye to this creature. Um, so what is it? Well, it's, it's a being who wants to convince the human rulers that the creator's holding out on them, that they actually have the right to, become, to take on a role of authority and yep. rule and knowing good and evil that's greater than what God's given to them. What he says is, he says, you can become Elohim. That's what he says. Wow. And whether that means capital G God or, or these spiritual beings. Yes. The, the point is they were made as terrestrial rulers. Made for one thing, you can become another. They, correct. So um, they're, what they're tempted to do by this being, and so that you're just meant to infer, what, what is this creature? Yes. That's trying to get these human creatures to overstep their bounds. This seems like a creature that's overstepping its bounds. And it turns out that God destines the creature to defeat and humiliation and destruction. Yeah. Um, God uh, says that from the line of the humans uh, is going to come a human who's going to yes. crush this being at, at right on the Genesis three fifteen. Genesis three fifteen. That's right. right. That's right. And it's precisely at a rebellion of heaven and earth. Both. Yes. Genesis three is is both a fall narrative of mm -hmm. the celestial powers. Both heaven and represented earth by rebel this. against God's vision. That's right, yeah. And so the depiction of the human story after this, we'll come back to Genesis 3.15 in a second, the snake okay. crusher, but is the narratives in Genesis 1 to 11, which are strange for any modern reader, yep. but they're just playing out the same thing. You get the next story is about a guy named Cain, who also faced a beastly temptation. He's tempted by a beast too, yes. except the beast is called by the word sin, and it's in him. Mm -hmm. It's a beast inside of him that wants to eat him. So you get, a, you get this image of there is a, a, a being, a spiritual reality of beings that are in rebellion in a way that mirrors the human rebellion, but that evil is also at work within, mm -hmm. evil without and evil within. And, and the fact that the first and second generation, Adam and Eve and then Cain, both face the, the, the beast. evil without and yep. the beast without and the and beast the, within. the predator crouching at the door. Yes, and then what he gives in, Cain gives into that urge and he murders his brother. Cain's descendants go on and the seventh of Cain's lineage is an even worse murderer than his great, yeah. great, great, great grandfather. Um, and then they build a city, and then it all leads up to the building of Babylon. Yep. And um, so the, the narrative is trying to create this, this arc here of the human rebellion, but it's also tracing the spiritual rebellion. Yep. And that crazy story about this Genesis 6, I don't know if you know it. Um, you probably do and have avoided it ever since you read it for the first time. But it's a story about the sons of God, the, the sons of Elohim, spiritual beings, who also cross their boundaries. Humans cross their boundaries. They cross their boundaries, yeah. and it's a complicated story. We don't have to get into it, but it's another rebellion yep. in the heavenlies. So the Bible's trying to tell us that the world is the way that it is, not just because of human stupidity, but that there is a, a dimension of reality that's not easy for us to see, mm -hmm. um, and that it works on both the individual 
level, like the Cain story. Yep. In us. How I deal with anger and resentment. Right? Jealousy. Jealousy. Envy. Yep. But also, it's working on a corporate level, the building of whole cities. And cultures. And cultures that comes under the name Babylon. The point is that humans can organize ourselves in corporate entities and begin both creating and being created by stories about who we are, about mm -hmm. what's wrong with That's us, right. about what our real problems are, about what are our limits, and what are the boundaries that we ought to cross, or what did our ancestors think were the boundaries we shouldn't cross, but we know, of course, wow. that we're made to become Elohim. And so we begin to redefine good and evil on an individual and corporate level. Yep. And what the biblical authors, want us, biblical authors want us to see is that that's, there's more than just humans at work. Yeah. There's what, what they'll call the powers. Yes. Um, so, so rebels of the d divine council yep. who are both participating in the destruction and ruin of God's good world, just like humans are. And that's, that's the key to how the biblical narrative works. There's a two-tiered mirror storyline progressing through the whole biblical narrative. Yes. And the biblical authors don't use this worldview to excuse human beings, like, oh, a devil made yeah. them do it. That's totally not the, it's that we are partnering, unbeknownst to ourselves, we buy into these cultural systems or these personal stories of redefining good and evil by our own wisdom. And without even knowing it, we can become partners with forces of evil and chaos that are so beyond our ability to comprehend. And, and we can even think that we're doing the right thing. Wow. When in fact, we are redefining evil as good. That's what the biblical authors want us to see. Yes. And so let's just pause. That's so profound. And so as you go throughout then the rest of the Hebrew Bible, the portrait of the evil one and the evil ones just continues to, yeah. to develop. And so you get these rebel spiritual beings who participate. They're called the um, sons of Elohim, or the sons of God in our English translations. Um, uh, they're sometimes called the powers. They're the hosts of heaven. Principalities. Principalities, and then... You have demons um, in the New Testament. Yeah, yeah totally. Right? I, actually, that word appears in the Hebrew Bible, shadim. Yeah. Um, so, and what these are, are beings who are working on an individual and corporate level to participate and aggravate the cosmic rebellion, resulting in the world that you and I inhabit. The, the promise given on page three in Genesis 3.15 is that there's another a human seed who will, who will not, not only not give in to spiritual evil, but will overcome and defeat it at its source. Yeah. Deal with the real problem at its root. Um, and, and then this whole human lineage that you follow gets traced on through Abraham, and he's pretty awesome, except when he's not. <laughs> when he's not acting like a snake. Aren't we all? Totally. When he's not deceiving and lying mm -hmm. and abusing immigrants, he's pretty wow. good. When, and his descendants are no better, <laughs> right, Jacob? Jacob's main name means deceiver. Yep. Um, and then the sons of Israel, the strugglers, those who struggle with El, those who struggle wow. with God. That's what Israel means, struggles with God. And so the story goes on and you're just like, oh, Moses, he's pretty good, except when he's not. David, he's pretty good, except when he's. And so you leave the Hebrew Bible going, you know what we need around here? We need a new human <laughs> who won't give in to spiritual evil, um, 
who will somehow overcome the evil one, but also in a way to rescue the evil the people who are captive yeah, to Babylon. To the evil one. To the evil one and its social manifestation in Babylon. And or would have been Roman Empire. That's right. Babylon becomes a, a symbol yep. to refer to any and all uh, human cultures that turn mm -hmm. them, their so values. So Nazi Germany is Babylon totally. and the Roman Empire is That's Babylon. That's right. And America's Babylon. I mean, yep. all, 100%. Totally. So you walk to page one of the New Testament and you see Jesus declaring the kingdom of God, that God is taking back his rule of the world through a, a merging of the divine and human. So the, the, this is what really I began to open, be, open my eyes to this, is there is so much I couldn't account for in the story yeah. of the Gospels within a materialist, non-supernatural world. Yeah. So, so what Jesus does was he, he starts this, right, this populist cell movement in the villages of Galilee. He walks into a village and spiritual evil freaks out. Yeah. Um, the stories of Jesus' exorcisms, his healings, his healings are often yes. freeing people yes. from There's a blurred line, right, between evil. exorcism and the healing. And we might separate those, healing versus exorcism. It's the same, it's the same activity. And it's, just, it's totally paired with integrating Matthew and the prostitutes and the sinners into God's family. Wow. That, and, and healing those who are impure and bodies riddled with skin disease and decay who couldn't go to the temple, but Jesus invites them into his little temple presence yep. that's traveling around now. Healing. And so Jesus, um, he's, he's so fully living in the world set up by the Hebrew Bible that he sees his true enemy. He'll go announce the kingdom of God in a city and demons are cast out and people are healed. And what he'll say in Luke chapter 10 is, I'm seeing the Satan fall from heaven. <laughs> so when people are freed from captivity to the internal Babylon and external Babylon and give their allegiance to Jesus and his new humanity and his love, they, the evil ones are being dethroned, so to speak, yes. over the, the rule of their and lives. And have lost power. That's exactly and right. And lost authority. That's right. So, so Jesus sees himself and presents himself as the human seed of the woman of Genesis 3.15, who's not fighting humans, he's dealing with the snake on its head. And so the word Satan um, is the Hebrew word that's one of the images yeah. to describe spiritual evil in the Hebrew Bible. It's not a name, it's a, just like Elohim is not yeah. a name. It's a title. It's a title um, that means the accuser or the opposer, mm -hmm. and which is a role that um, this being can play in the divine council. Yes. Which is what you see this figure doing in the book of Job. Job, yeah. And also in the book of Zechariah. And it's what he's doing with Jesus in the testing him in the desert. Mm -hmm. he's, he's putting his, what's happening with Jesus in the desert is a replay of the garden. It's, it's spiritual evil offering a human, the human Jesus, a chance to rule on his own terms. Um, and Jesus, of course, is made and destined to rule, just like humans are on page one. Yeah. Um, but Jesus, instead of seizing authority, um, as Paul says in Philippians 2, he doesn't seize for his own advantage what yeah. is already rightly his own. Yeah. Rather, he, give, he empties himself um, and gives his life for others. And so that's the, you know, he defeats evil by letting evil defeat him through its human agents who think they're doing good. 
I think the point is, this is Jesus' way of seeing the world. Yeah. This is the apostles' way of seeing the world. When Paul looks out at Christians being persecuted or himself sitting in prison in Ephesians, right? He'll yeah. write that you guys, our enemy is never another human. It's never another human. It's, it's realities that are hard for us to see. Um, often invisible, but not always. Especially because the whole point of yeah. this evil is that it's a the mirror of, of heaven and earth. And so we, actually, we can become agents and participants in evil with, without even knowing it. But humans are never the ultimate problem. It's something uh, darker and more mysterious un lurking underneath. That's yeah. Paul's view of the world. It's corporate, it's individual. It's so profound. That's it.